Blog Talk Radio. everyone. It's 9 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time, and it is Sunday, July 14, 2019. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. I'm here with my co-host and longtime friend, Bill Stagel. Bill, how are you? Good, buddy. How are you tonight? I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking. It's a, be- it's a beautiful uh, July in Texas. We've had a great day, unseasonably cool here the last couple of days, and been... Uh, taking the opportunity to enjoy some time outside. How about you? Likewise, it's been, uh, you know, I like summer, so I'm not one of those people that complain about the heat and humidity because I have learned a long time ago, Bill, that I have never had to, no matter how hot it is, I have never had to wake up early to shovel the heat and humidity off of my driveway to get to work on time. Um, So I am a fan of summer. That's right. You hear me. Um, I am a fan yeah. of summer. I like uh, long days, short nights, humid, humidity, bugs, birds, all that good stuff that comes with it. So, yeah, I love it. I'm outside right now, so you might hear some, some wildlife. Hopefully I'm not drug off by a pack of wild coyotes while the show is being recorded. But, hey, you know, it is what it is. Right, Bill? Well, I mean, you're a trained professional. You can – uh, self-treat any <laughs> significant uh, wounds. I'm, I'm sure I'm not worried about that. There you go. You just got back from a you just got back from a camping trip, right? I did a little backpacking trip. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, I, you- I I spent a week with my oldest son, my 14 year old son. I did a uh, a 70 mile uh, through hike of a trail in western Pennsylvania called the Laurel Highlands Hiking Trail. Um, we initially thought we would start on a Sunday and be done the next Saturday, but we actually started on Sunday. We were done on Friday. Um, wow. so it was a great time. We had great, great weather, a couple of thunderstorms, but they were mostly at night when we were, you know, in our little shelters. Um, so it wasn't a big deal, but it was great. We, uh, you know, spent the day hiking and talking and, you know, just, uh, enjoying being out in the wilds. And then this past weekend my uh youngest son that was kind of uh enjoying all the stories my oldest son was telling him about our backpacking trip and uh so we took him out for a uh well my wife also went we did a uh, just a two-day single overnight backpacking trip on the Appalachian Trail just to see if he would enjoy it so yep been doing some outside stuff with the with the family it's it's good it's all good fantastic sounds very very wholesome family, uh, fun and good times together. That's great to hear. 
Absolutely. I, you know, it's a whole week alone with my 14-year-old. That was uh, a blessing. Um, <laughs> you, we've had we had some funny and unique conversations that you know sometimes yeah. the the busyness of life just prevents those conversations from having multiple pathways. And yep. you know sometimes you get one break off, break away, but then you can't go back to that other intersection and talk about where we were going the other way. So it was it was a good experience. Um, and awesome. uh, you know I think he enjoyed it. Yep. Well, we're what about um, you, Bill? What you been up to? Um, really not a whole lot. We are um, mission one hundred percent looking for houses right now. Uh, my wife accepted a job. A, a counseling job that's going to be about an hour from where we currently are living. Mm. Uh, so we are house hunting, which is uh, turned out to be a blessing and a curse. Uh, the housing market <laughs> here in Texas is, is just absolutely on fire, um, right. which is good for our local economy, uh, but it makes it very hard to find uh, reasonable uh, housing at a reasonable price. Uh, you know, these things are houses will literally go on the market and be sold the same day with multiple offers. So it's, hmm. that's been a little bit uh, stressful, but we're going to get through it. We'll find the right place for us eventually. And uh, then I'll have the daunting task of moving my collection of untold numbers of animals. I don't even know how many it is. Oh boy. Well, I'll call, I'll call you when I'm, when it's time to move so you can, you can come down and, and, and help out. Don't worry. I have uh, Owen and Eric and Matt all lined up. <laughs> you guys can all take Spirit Airlines direct flight DFW. I'll pick you up. Uh, we'll work for a week, and right. then I'll, I'll get back on the plane. Actually, they're going to wear body cams, and I'm going to direct them from here um, <laughs> to make sure they're doing it correctly. Now, listen, that's Trooper's job. You get with the minions and get your ass down here. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. I was going to say, we're we're going to, uh, we're kind of stepping out of the box this episode after how many years? Is this our seventh five, year? Of five and a half. Uh, seems like yeah. so. Um, yeah. But we are actually going to get out of uh, the just strictly uh, green tree talk and we're, we're going to diversify a little bit. Do different arboreal species. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be good. To I think. Yeah, a, a lot of people um, that keep condors also keep uh, uh, boas that are arboreal too. So it's uh, it's going to be interesting. We'll uh, we're going to chat a little bit about that and see if you know if a guy like me or you, Bill, with lots of experience with condors, can uh, you know transition smoothly into the the boa. Arboreal boa world, or, or are we yeah. or are we in trouble? It'd be interesting. You you said there's a lot of crossover, and I don't know how much crossover there is. Um, I think Jeff uh, will may know better than both of us since he has kept both. But a lot of the people you know that I'm just aware of do not keep ar arboreal boas. I know Ian Bissell does. Uh, obviously, Marshall does. Gary does. John Martin does, um, and I'm sure we could go continue to go on with the list. Uh, it'd be interesting to get Jeff's perspective on how many of us um, keep boas. Yeah, 
And you know, Rico kept uh, a large collection of not only emeralds but uh, Amazon tree bellas mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, one of one of the community's you know founders and you know most successful breeders was uh, kept the abellas. Kept them, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to the show. Before we get going too far, I wanted to just announce that Southeast Carpet Fest is coming up July 27th. Um, it's being hosted by Brian Cusco in California. I think Brandon Wheeler is primarily running a lot of the logistics of that. So if anybody is in the uh, California area and is not aware of Southeast Carpet Fest, it's July 27th. So contact, uh, I would contact Brandon Wheeler on Facebook. Uh, he's putting together the logistics. He can give you the address. He can give you the specifics of what they need and when they need. Uh, so just wanted to throw that out there. Obviously, we are huge fans of Carpet Fest, um, all of them. And I think there's, I think there's probably, what is there, five or six in the United States and a couple uh, in Europe. Yes. Yep, they. I mean, if if you can get to one of the, get to a carpet fest, you should go. Um, you know, make the drive. Um, I mean, even if you're super close, all the better for you because you know, the people that you'll meet there and uh, you know hang out with and just you know chat snakes with in a casual, laid back atmosphere is amazing. Absolutely, absolutely. So we. Bill, we forgot to add though that we actually did survive another carpet fest. <laughs> we we did survive a carpet fest, yes, and it was a good one. It was, you know, they they they're all good. This one was just, I mean, it it was, uh, I mean, it was just very reminiscent of the last several that uh, Eric has hosted up there. They're big, well attended, well put on a huge collaboration of uh, so many different people that put that thing on as far as the hosting, the food, the prep, um, man, it was a, it was another home run. Agreed. Yeah. And I didn't need a wheelchair this time to get on the airplane. That was good. <laughs> that, that always uh, is a good thing when you leave and you're able to like ambulate properly uh, leaving yep, yep. Carpet Fest. Yeah, it was a bonus. But you didn't, it wasn't this, like, you didn't need it, but, you, you know, our listeners may not, they're probably thinking you needed a wheelchair for a certain reason, but it was well, another reason you you needed a wheelchair, correct? Well, what what's the reason that you're thinking about? Uh, I think maybe uh, ETOH, some alcohol or something like that, you needed a wheelchair to get rolled out. It was a combination of that, and my ankle was severely jacked up at the hands of Nick Scally. <laughs> yeah, so I it was a little severe, bit of trauma. Yeah, it was try. It was it was a combination of drug and trauma, which we you know you see a lot. So, now did you ask for this wheelchair? Or did like someone say no? You sh you should be in a wheelchair. No, I pretty much hobbled into the airport and saw somebody, saw one of the ushers, the guys with the wheelchairs, and I said, yeah, I think I'll be taking one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I got the security immediately. It was incredible. There you go. There I, you go. You know, I, 
I hate to be a, an abuser of the system, but yeah, security was a breeze. <laughs> uh, and, and did Kim push you, or did you have to roll yourself? Uh, no, no, I had an usher, a very nice gentleman, oh, uh, man. pushed me the whole way, got me through security, uh, got me right up the gate, and uh, yeah, very, very nice young man. Okay, all right, good. Well, um, as you know, I got a little bit of national airtime this week. Yeah, I do know about that. And that was, uh, it, I shared it, by the way, in case I don't share a lot of snake stuff on my primarily my own Facebook page. page but I, yeah, but I did share that because it was awesome. I did upload the video to the uh, GTP Keeper Facebook page. Um, if anybody wants to watch the, because the video is, is cooler than just the audio, but I thought um, for the people that didn't hear it, I thought uh, it's a four minute clip. I thought we'd play it before we brought Jeff on. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. But let's, they'll set it up for us. So okay. um, you, you called in to talk to him, but, but what was the catalyst yeah. for this to, to, to start this conversation with the, the crew on that day? Yeah, yeah. So um, I've never called into a, another radio show other than um, really Python Radio. I think I've called in there once. Um, but I, because I'm working from home now, quote unquote, uh, <laughs> a lot of times I'm working with the animals and ESPN, the the the, um, uh, the national sports show ESPN is often on my TV, and it happened to be on my TV uh, the day that I was working. It's late late morning uh, here in Texas. And the show that I'm watching is called The Will Kane Show, which I'm kind of a fan of because Will Kane uh, is a commentator and he's local to the Dallas area. So he's a big like Texas Ranger, Dallas Maverick, Dallas Cowboy um, fan. So I, I listen to him and I enjoy the show. He was not on. He was off this week. So he had two co-hosts that were uh, in for him. But they had been talking and I've been listening. It's, a, it's like a two or three hour show. And in the first hour – they had been talking. One of the co-hosts, a female, had spotted a snake on her. I don't know. I think it was a bicycle ride or something. You know, the day before, and how it freaked her out, and you know, she just couldn't believe it. She saw a snake and didn't know what to do. And so they started talking about snakes, and which I was fine. I thought it was kind of cool. But then they started talking about snake people. And how mm. did either one of them know any reptile people? No, I don't. I don't know anybody that has reptiles. They're probably very weird people. They're probably very strange. And so this this went on for a little bit of time. And they kept, you know, this is a sports show, but they kept talking about these snakes and reptile people. And then they had a caller come on who was a, supposedly a snake guy. And so they get them on, okay. and they go, well. They go, well, did you, did you, you know, what, what kind of snakes do you have? What, what do you, what experience do you have with snakes? And he said, oh, I've never kept a snake, but I, I caught a copperhead one time out in, you know, in my yard and, you know, killed it or <laughs> let it go, whatever. He, just, he caught, he caught a snake. Right. Uh, uh, okay. Well, you're not really a snake guy. So I called in and it took me about five or 10 minutes. Cause at this point I was kind of pissed. I mean, because they were like, they were dogging just reptiles and snakes is just being, uh, you know, just unproductive to society and, and snake people as well. 
So I, got, I kind of had an edge right. to me, and so I called in, and um, that's the setup. So I'll play the – it's about four and a half minutes. I'll play the clip. Okay. Uh, I, would suggest, I would suggest looking on it, even though this is a talk show radio, they do it uh, live in the studio on TV. So if you want to see the TV version, I'd recommend that. But here's, here's the audio. Let me see if I can get it, get it up and going. Yeah, let's try it. Randy gave me the keys to the car. It's Will Kane show <laughs> on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It is now Will Kane. It's Randy Scott. It's Nicole Briscoe. Normally, you can see us on ESPN Sports Center, 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on ESPN and ESPN2. You know, just in case you're up early in the morning. I'm saying. We're we presented are. by Progressive Insurance, and all guests join us on the Shell Pennzoil Performance Line. We're going to get to Bill in Texas in a minute because Bill is an exotic reptile breeder there's a lot to unpack there. and i don't even know what that means we're gonna find out should we just find out now i think we should let's just get this out of the way bill from texas what does it mean to be an exotic reptile deal breeder 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 not dealer breeder yeah well i'm a breeder and a dealer um but hey first of all thanks for taking my call i'm a big fan of the show uh, I'm a Will Kane kind of homer being from the Dallas area, but you guys are doing a great job today. Thank you. Thank I appreciate you. that. I will say um, first that you guys have some misconceptions about snakes and snake guys, especially you, Nicole. <laughs> I, I am like not some weirdo that just is holed up in my hub and has no friends and nobody wants to come over and, and hang out with me and the hold snakes. Up. Yeah, hold that's up. Not the case. Yeah, that Nicole. was Randy who said that, not me. <laughs> but we're cool. Okay. No, I'm pretty much said you, yeah. pretty much said you have dogs and cats and you just don't associate with those people that keep reptiles right. in the snakes and stuff like that. <laughs> Tell me about it. Tell me about it, Bill. Oh, go on. Go on. Well, okay. So... I am actually, I retired from my practice of medicine this year to um, do the, the reptile thing full time. The, uh, the hours are better and I don't have to, I don't have to mess with the insurance companies. That's, that's, that's fair. What, what medicine were you in? Uh, I was an anesthesiologist. Do you find that useful in your current line of work? Um, not as much as just my science background. I've got you know, heavy science background with biology, always interested in animals, all kinds of animals. I've got dogs and cats, too, and, and I've had probably, you know, lots of different animals as, as I've grown up and as my kids have, have grown up around here. But I always had a fascination with reptiles okay. from a young age. So what kind of exotic so, reptiles are we talking about here? I deal exclusively in small-body pythons that are non-venomous. So you, when you think python, you probably think of the Everglades, big giant Burmese pythons are taking over the Everglades and eating all the indigenous life there. I, I do not deal with big snakes or venomous snakes. So everything that I have is docile, handleable. Uh, you know, I would give it to a three and have many times given it to a three and four year old kid, and uh, you know, no big production. When they're that's how 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 long do they stay that small though? Like how. What's our window of safety with regard to these snakes that you're dealing with? Mine stay small their entire life. What's small? Mine, What's the definition oh. of small? Oh, okay, sure. So I've got some species that don't get any longer than three feet. Um, I've got a couple of species that'll get up into the five, six feet range, which sounds big, but they're they're very thin and um, you know 
they're very handable. The big difference, you guys have been talking a lot about um, wild snakes, right? Stuff that the copperheads and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the animals that I work with and produce are a totally different animal than that. These are domesticated reptiles, snakes. Um, they were not plucked from the wild. They're not defensive. They're not aggressive. You literally you just pull them out of the cage and, you know, you handle them like you handle a, any other pet. Is that like saying this is a domesticated lion? Uh, no, it's more like saying it's a domesticated dog. So it would be like the difference in a wild African dog versus the dog that you have at home that's been bred in generations, um, you know, to, to not be defensive and not be aggressive. Well, speaking of speaking of dogs, as we have Bill from Texas, who's the exotic reptile breeder mm-hmm. on, the, on the show. And all this is happening because I happen to see a snake while out on a bike while ride. While you're out on a bike ride. And yeah. I feel like you should send a picture of that snake to Bill yeah, on awesome. social media. Uh, 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 do you Just have a social there. media handle? Yes, um, on Facebook, I'm Bill Stiegel, or I'm Phoenix Reptiles, and I also have a podcast. It's called Keeper Keeper Radio. All right, all right, Bill, we appreciate the hustle. No, that's true. Oh, we great. No, we great. left the window open, and he, and he slithered right there. Yes. So, well with, with regard to the dogs, <laughs> you said you have dogs, you have cats. How are they around the snakes, or are those uh, two entities that that never shall shall meet? Did we lose Bill? I think we lost Bill. Why did we lose Bill? What happened? I don't know. It's fine. Because you, you, you tried to, like, pimp his own podcast. The line got constricted. That's what happens. This guy gets it. <laughs> this guy gets it. I'm so proud of yourself um, with all of these. I feel like you shouldn't have been so rude to snake people. And I, feel I, like, I feel like you got I, called out. I, you got yeah, called out. I was no less rude to snake people than I think some of these NBA players are rude to their fan bases. Segway. Like a professional. Like a mall Well, so there it was. There it is. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> she did get called uh, out. Yeah, she did. It's all right. Yeah. It's okay. So, yeah. Um yeah, you know, I yeah. actually think what happens is that um when you said GTP Keeper Radio, um they were gonna have to pay Eric and Owen the royalty for that being broadcast on their radio show. So yep. they immediately cut it off so they wouldn't have to pay those royalties back to Eric and, and Owen. Eric, a tremendous amount of money, I'm sure, that ESPN did not want to, you know, take responsibility for. No doubt. No doubt. They're struggling over there. I mean, you know, they, they need some fresh blood, Bill. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not us. Man, I love to be able to plug GTP Keeper Radio on national television. I never thought of the day I'd, I'd see today. <laughs> uh, well, you know, they were. Ex- right. The funny part is, they were expecting you to say that you know, uh, you were, a, you know, a loner, drifter, never, ha- never held down any employment whatsoever in your life. Um, right. You know. Right. D- didn't finish. Uh, you know, uh, dropped out of eighth grade. Um, right. All that kind of stuff. You know that they were expecting that answer, and you, you were not that answer for them. Yeah, I mean, I think they were kind of into it, but the producer, I think, had had enough of uh, snake talk on his, you know, nationally uh, televised sports show. Right. Yeah, the, the the people were probably tuning off as soon as you started talking snakes. They, they saw the ratings <laughs> I got, dropping, precipitating. I, maybe I got a lot of Facebook action that day. Yes, that. you did. I yep. got a lot of yep. Facebook, uh, a lot of Facebook action, a lot of new friend requests, and that kind of stuff. So that's good. 
you know, educating yeah, 180 yeah. at a time. That's what we do. That's it. All right. Well, listen, we have bantered on way longer than we normally yeah, do. Yeah, we which, have. We both know that the that's that's not what the audience wants to hear. So why don't you introduce and, and get Jeff on? Yeah. So, uh, Jeff Gobbo, welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. For those of you that don't know, Jeff has uh, a couple of things that he does, and that is Corrales Radio, which is a kind of a counterpart, or is a counterpart to essentially what we do here at GTP Keeper Radio. Jeff also uh, has a awesome uh, YouTube video collection where he goes around and looks at other people's collections and talks snakes in general, um, and he also has Godbolt Exotics. So, Jeff, welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Hey, guys. Thanks. Thanks wow. for coming on, Jeff. Some yeah. I've ever gotten a we've, got a big, we, we've got a very large studio audience, so don't be intimidated by that. Were they standing? <laughs> they were, I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah. Well, glad I I uh, had a chance to come on tonight, and I'm honored that you guys would ask me to come on. So I'm excited to talk about whatever. Of course, us too. Um, why don't so, you kind of introduce, but, but Buddy did a, a good job introducing you, but why don't you kind of take that the next step and tell the audience a little bit about your background with uh, green trees and Amazon tree boas and anything else that you keep in your podcast. Okay. Well, um, I guess to kind of go a little bit before that, um, I'm, I'm a Florida native. I grew up in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I currently live in Northern California. I've been out here for about seven years, but the reptile interest really kind of was catapulted when I was a kid because I was always, um, I lived around water. And so I was always catching uh, things, either cottonmouths or corn snakes, or, um, you know, I had even caught birds. My main fascination when I was a kid was turtles, aquatic turtles. So, um, I would frequently show up on my doorstep uh, soaked because I would go into the ponds and creeks after turtles when I should be getting on the bus to go to school. Um, <laughs> and I guess my mom would just kind of shake it off like I guess there could be worse things he's into. But uh, that's kind of where it got started. And most of the stuff I kept as a kid w- was not commercially bought. It was just stuff that uh, I caught and native stuff in northern Florida. Um, then I, uh, at, after graduating high school, um, I left for my church uh, to go live down in the Amazon of Brazil for a couple years. Um, and I really got to see some pretty exotic stuff down there um, and uh, northern Brazil and the uh, Manaus area. Uh, traveled around to a few of the different states that bordered uh, Peru, um, Venezuela. Um, we were about seven days up the Amazon River by boat. That's where Manaus is, but it's a massive city. So um, when you're not in the main city, it's all jungle. So uh, got to see a lot of really cool stuff down there. That's where I really started getting into snakes um, because I saw a lot of snakes down there. And uh, when I got back, um, I 
wanted an emerald tree boa or a green tree python. That's what I wanted, uh, but I couldn't afford either. Um, so I bought the next prettiest thing that I could find, and that was a patternless red Amazon tree boa. Um, and this was 2004. So Amazon tree boa was my first commercially purchased um, snake. And I remember when they shipped it, I bought it from, I was living in San Diego uh, for a short time. Um, really all I was doing out there was surfing and having fun. But um, nice. I would work a little bit here and there. But anyway, I, w I bought this steak from a guy in South Florida, and he sent it to me. And I remember going to Delta to pick it up. It was like uh, a small box with a wooden dowel rod in it inside of a bigger box. Um, very, very different from the way we pack animals now. I had never, mm. I didn't even know you could ship snakes. But I remember pulling it out, and as it was biting me, I was thinking, this is the coolest <laughs> snake I've ever seen. Um, fast forward was a couple it, years. Was it an adult ahead. or a baby? Um, it was a juvenile. So it was probably about a year and a half to maybe a two-year-old. Um, fast forward a couple years to 2006. Um, I bought my first green tree python. Um, now with chondros, I really didn't know anything like that. Well, I knew there. I so so I didn't know there were green tree pythons really. I knew there were emerald tree boas. I didn't know there was a python version, and I was just searching for snakes because I was like. I had a couple odds and ends, but I didn't really, you know, the internet was not like, I guess I wasn't using it like a ton. Um, I was using a little bit here and there, but uh, I didn't really know what world existed beyond just, you know, pet stores and, and stuff. And, right. And I remember stumbling onto Gr Greg Maxwell's site and my mind was blown. I was just like, <laughs> what? are these i'm like holy cow now at that point you know i i remember i reached out to greg talked with greg a little bit um, before i owned any i reached out to rico um because I, I just started like looking for any information i could find on green tree pythons i mean i was like addicted anything right. i could find um and uh as i talked to him i was like okay I know what I want, and I can't afford that. <clears throat> These animals are way, way out of my price range. So I bought a couple of locality types um, from, uh, I don't even think he's in a hobby anymore. His name is Troy Franz, uh, Franz Herbological. I bought a couple, uh, Jayapura and Maroki. Oh, I bought four. So I bought two Maroki and two uh, Jayapura locality types. Raised Do you know him, buddy? And Do you know that source, buddy? You know who that is? Troy Franz, yep. Yeah, he was, uh, okay. he was uh, I believe he's out of Florida, but I think he, most of his stuff actually came from Cameron. Okay. Yep. Right. He was, yeah, he was very, uh, actually he was probably one of the better sources for some farm bird animals that you could get back in the in the era Jeff was talking about. And um, he was, you know, he he pretty much had the, the kingsnake.com uh, advertisement stuff. Hmm down to a science. Oh, uh, okay. All right. 
All right, Jack, uh, go on, Jeff. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's all right. So I picked up a few of those, and from then I just started, I pretty much sold everything. Um, and, uh, well, I didn't sell on everything. I pretty much dropped it off for consignment at a reptile store, and including the Amazon that I had. I had a couple Amazons at the time, but I was just trying to get all these green tree pythons. And in a short time, I accumulated a small arsenal uh, of green trees. Um, I did end up getting some designer stuff. Um, I had some uh, blue line stuff. I had some OS high yellow. Um, I had some stuff with like small percentage of lemon tree in it. Um, I had some uh, Prada stuff. I had Barsky uh, blue line. Um, I had uh, some stuff from Eddie Astey. Um, I yeah, you did have an you, you did have an arsenal. I did, and I so I never bred green tree pythons, and it was because I always bought babies, and I just didn't want to buy any adults. I wanted to kind of go through like the the I guess watching them grow and everything like that. So. About four or five years into it, when all my animals were getting to maturity, um, I went through a divorce and um, kind of had my collection spread out in three different uh, places uh, because my uh, ex-wife was getting the house. And I pretty much sold what I could to kind of come out of that without being too... too, uh, too much on the on the kind of in debt and right. um, what I had left, I ended up having something come through my collection and just totally wipe it out. Um, oh, so wow. I I took like a two or three year hiatus from reptiles altogether and got back into keeping reptiles about seven years ago when I met my now wife and. Um, that's just kind of what's brought me back. And I have not gotten back into chondros. Um, I've had some stuff come in on trade that I've gotten, but like through everything, I just, I really kind of got scared with the chondros after I lost what I had. I mean, I lost quite a few animals, um, some high dollar ones. Right. And, um, and I kind of re- always regretted selling my Amazons, and they were like my first snake. And so when I started getting back into it seven years ago, I just started buying, you know, I kind of made Amazons my my main focus. And I haven't gotten back into condors, although they have been on my radar uh, recently a little more than they have been over the last seven years. So... I perceive myself getting back into them. I just probably will go a different route. I was really focused on designer stuff before. I will probably focus on locality types and locality crosses. I, I really like Biox. Like they've always been a favorite of mine. So I, if I get back into it, I'd like to just do uh, Biox locality types and maybe uh, cross them with, you know, maybe one or two other locales and I might have a designer awesome. animal just to have it. But that's, that's kind of where that's at. 
Yeah, we're really looking forward to, um, as the show goes on, you know, you have a unique ability uh, to compare and contrast the two species. And so, uh, you know, everything from husbandry to uh, you know, sourcing of the animals and, and reproduction and all that kind of stuff. So really looking forward to getting into some of the meat of that um, as, the, as the show goes on a little bit. Sure. Tell us about your tell, so, tell us about your podcast real quick. Okay, so um, in 2013, um, I, I guess Morello Python Radio was kind of getting started. I maybe had been going for a little while, and I was just like thinking nobody talks about Amazon. Like we we used to have forums, and we had an Amazon forum called Amazon Alliance. And it went away, and you know, Facebook kind of had had taken all that stuff out, so there wasn't oh, really yeah. any good info. And yep. I was sick of seeing all the YouTube channels that were just focusing on like retics and ball pythons and leopard geckos and some of that stuff. And it's not I have anything against that. I just felt like there was a lot of other really cool options out there that were more niche species that people didn't really know about. And so I went on to Facebook and I was like, hey because I'm not the most experienced keeper. I was like, why don't one of you guys, you know, start a podcast with Corrales? Like, um, you know, call it Corrales Radio or something like that, you know? Who, <laughs> great you know? idea, yeah. And, yeah, I thought it was great. Somebody, you know, I, I thought for sure somebody would take the ball and run with it. And it, it was kind of like a unanimous response from people that were commenting like um you should do it i think you just found <laughs> right. the name of your next of the next of your podcast and i was <laughs> like well hold on a minute that's not really what i was suggesting <laughs> i'm not the most experienced guy out there with these like you know and so that's kind of how corrales radio was born started with a co-host um dayton croyton um and Dayton's still a good friend of mine to today, but uh, we did it for, I don't know, year and a half, two years. And then um, I felt like I just needed to kind of professionally, I was like pursuing some other things. So I just kind of like let the radio show go on a little bit of a hiatus for uh, a year or two. And then got back into it because I started having people reach out like, hey, have you done any new episodes? Are you going to do any more episodes? That kind of thing. And so I started doing it again uh, a few years back and it's kind of, I thought, well, now, now I think I'm going to do it just me. I, I don't want to co-host. I want to have full control over the material. And if I'm doing most of the work, I want, I want to own it because it was kind of yeah. the thing with Dayton was like, we were going to split it 50, 50, but you know, I like Dayton a lot, but, he was not like he was not getting um posts and stuff like that like he was supposed to be and you know there was some other things where i just kind of felt like we were kind of in in different mindsets and what we wanted with the show and i talked to him and he's like no nah, i kind of you know i kind of don't really have time for it right now i think he was working on starting a family and so it just was better if we parted ways we we did so on good terms so um, good. Anyway, good. That's kind of where, where it's at. I and often 
It's a block. I, I often feel like I often feel like that with Buddy too. Uh, in fact, you probably <laughs> I think after the after the show's over, Buddy and I probably gonna have a heart to heart conversation. So. <laughs> oh, oh, well. I hope I didn't bring up any uh, stir up any bad. No, uh, you know, you, you you sparked my interest. You you sparked my interest. Oh. Okay. <laughs> well, um, so how often know, do you we, do we focus how often on Corrales, do you do an episode? Yeah. What's that? Uh, how often do you do an episode? So, you know, I'm not like uh, Owen and and Eric. I've got you know three kids, wife, and I have a lot of other things going on, so I don't really do it every week. Um, I don't have the time to do it every week, but I try and fit um, two, if I'm lucky, three a month in. Like, we just had Keith McPeak on our show uh, last yeah. week. Yeah, um, great episode. And, uh, oh, I'm glad you listened to it. it yeah. You know, and that was kind of one of my points was, you know, I try to make the cons- the consistency paralysis, but there's a lot of stuff that I'm into. And if I was just going to do paralysis, I'd probably burn through gas pretty quick. And right. I like, I like bringing other people in that. And a one way to do that is to talk about other species that people are interested in. If they listen to that, they're going to be like, Holy crap, this guy's got another 50 something episodes. So I'm going to listen to those, and a lot of those, the majority of them, are about Corrales, and I can bring them into Corrales that way. Um, right. But I try to do two to three a month. Um, that's about, and it's kind of sporadic. I I'm, I plan it with the guest, but I don't have like it's not like second Tuesday of every month or whatever. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's okay. kind of I I own my my own business. I'm an appraiser, um, so I work really I work sometimes really weird hours based off when I have to get a report to a lender and so right. um, it it makes it such that I I really it's a feast or famine industry so right now I'm just working my tail off so that's kind of well keeps me from well, planning a lot in advance well thank you for taking the time to to be on our our show tonight because I know it's a couple hours out of your out of your time. I don't know if you're going to do a show uh, this week or not, but it was, you know, we talked, uh, I guess it's probably been a month ago, at least now about exactly what you talked about, about, um, you know, the reason that we wanted to, to have you on was to try to, you know, perhaps lure some Corrales keepers and enthusiasts towards us. And then in the future, um, you know, we get on your show you know, to do the same thing. Cause there's, such, I think there is a good crossover. I think there's, um, a lot of keepers that would, uh, enjoy, you know, keeping each of these species together. For sure. And the funny thing about Amazons is you used to see, um, you know, the, the, the reputation with condors is everybody thought they were bitey, that they didn't do well in captivity. And people were basing that off of imported animals that were coming in in really rough shape. Right. Um, it's mm-hmm. the same thing with Amazon tree boas. Uh, and probably you could say the same thing for some of the emeralds too. Um, they're coming in in rough shape and 
that's all people are seeing are these rough um, imports that are not not doing so great, and they've probably been sitting in a holding uh, place for you know a month or two, and um, they kind of look at them like you know at, like not worth very much, I guess. And and that's that's not the case. Like you you get cat. I actually have a friend of mine who came over today. Um, he's a, a CHP officer, but he's a, a buddy of mine who's really into Brettles pythons. And he was looking at my Amazons, and he was like, "Dude, I guess I've never really seen quality Amazons because this stuff. I had no idea this was. Like, I thought Amazons yeah. were like this, this, and this, and this. And I was like, "Yeah, man, it's you get expectations in, and you fine tune the." the the breeding and, and you start trying to go for certain traits and stuff like that. And you, you know, you can, bre- like I can freehandle almost all of my Amazon tree boas. Yeah. Except for yep. two. Yep. And they're not trying to attack me, you know, but it's, they have the it's such a, fam- it's being really it's such a familiar, such a familiar story, Jeff, just exactly, you know, how you described um, the, the vast majority of people think the exact same thing about green trees. Absolutely. Yeah. It, hey, Jeff, I have a question for you. Like, go ahead. So, um, you know, what for, you know, we can talk, and you can break these down for me. So um, for Amazons and Emeralds and Basins, um, are is, are they being fairly, uh, you know, bred in numbers in captivity or, um, there's still a lot of them just being imported, and then you kind of get the, you know, the guys that really work with them are the ones that are being successful. You know, what's the status? Are most of them coming in? Are most of them right now for sale? Are they wild caught animals, or are they captive bred animals? That's a great question. Well, well, first of all, Brazil is like Australia; you can't get anything from there. Okay. Um, so there's nothing coming in from Brazil. If it is. No one's going to tell you how it's getting here. Um, right. So I've seen a few basins that have been sold uh, by, um, I guess, uh, wholesalers or middlemen or whatever. And I would imagine that those animals are either coming in from people that they've been here in the country for a while um, or uh, the exact way those animals came in, uh, you're not going to get a straight answer as far as basins go. Right. Um, gotcha. The only people that are really producing them in numbers, um, you know, you had Rico, uh, but really it's Steve Volk and Ed Marino um, because they they have the larger collections, and you have some guys that have a few pairs here and there, but Nobody's really producing them with any kind of consistency except for those two guys, at least here in the U.S. I think there may be one or two guys over in the um, over in Europe that are, but I've never kept basins personally, so I'm probably not the best, the most knowledgeable on the who's who with those. Um, right. I know a lot of people that have uh, a pair here and there, but um, for northerns, um, northern 
you've got Ryan Wallison. He's probably one of the uh, more renowned um, uh, caninus breeders, and he seems to produce them every year. Um, I know uh, Bill Hughes was producing them every year, but I think he had something kind of wonky come in in his collection, so I don't know like if he's still selling babies or if he still has babies or something like that. I don't know if he held stuff back, but I know he had or has uh, a decent-sized group of caninus. I just don't know what he's doing with them. Um, and you've got uh, uh, Bill Babcock and um, Tom Widener, the guys that owned Habitat Systems. They okay. They pretty much bought most of Rico's uh, tree boa collection um, after Rico passed away. I, oh. I don't think they they have done a lot with it, but um, I I talked to Bill um, off and on, and I was talked to Tom a couple weeks ago, and they told me they've got, I mean, cages upon cages of of habitat systems because habitat systems folded. So they had all these cages around. Right. Well, supposedly they're just filling them with tree boas. Um, and they've got a bunch of, of, uh, Rico stuff still there. I, I don't really know. I, I don't know what they're doing with them to be honest, but I know that they have a pretty sizable quantity of animals, most of which came from Rico. Okay. Jeff, Jeff, what about, and, that side. Jeff, what about the stuff that you work with exclusively, the Amazon tree boas? What kind of same question Buddy asked, but what oh. about those being imported so, versus? So Amazons have the largest range of any of the Corrales. Um, so you can, you're going to get them pretty frequently. They're, they're still coming in from Suriname. Um, you're still getting Guiana stuff that comes in. You've got Amazons that are all over that area from the northern portions of uh, South America all the way up through, you know, uh, the lower portion of, of Central America. And they are still being imported pretty pretty readily. Um, as far as importers go, there's very few I trust. Um, mm -hmm. Fascination Herp is one that I have bought from, and their animals are pretty pretty nice. Um, they take pretty good care of them. Um, I know uh, Scales and Tails of Ohio, um, Mike Easter, uh, takes good care of his animals uh, when he gets stuff in. I only have um, a couple wild pots. Uh, and I'm pretty selective on what I buy. Um, and truth be told, I'd rather get animals younger than older. Right. Because I feel like I have a better chance of raising it up and getting to know that animal um, through my care and my husbandry methods than getting it from somebody else who I don't know how they've been keeping it. I don't know what, what it's been exposed to. Um, and yep. I prefer to get stuff that's just come in. I don't want stuff sitting in a in a you know a shop 
for a month or right. two. I want to, I want to get it like after it's been in like that week. Like I want to get it shipped as soon as possible. Um, everything else I have, I really try to go cast as born and bred. Um, I think uh, I have bought probably seven or eight animals from Rory Gresco, um, who kind of has the morph side of Amazon's pegged. Uh, yeah, she and she was on I've one gotten, of your episodes, right? Yeah, I listened to her episode. Yeah, he's Rory is it her? Is it once it? or twice. It's a, no, it's a guy. He's down in Southern okay. California. I'm, I'm thinking um, about a female you had on that talked about morphs. Abby Melavacino. Okay, yeah. That's who you're thinking of. Yeah. Um, so there are some, some – there are more breeders of Amazon tree boas than there are um, – the other corrales, but uh, I, I think a lot of those guys are starting to get out of it. So you still have Rory. Rory does Amazon exclusively. Like, he doesn't keep anything else. Um, <laughs> Dayton Croyton is still focused on um, Amazon, but he's got a couple other species. Uh, I think he co-owns some animals which I'll get into when I start talking about morphs uh, with Nick Mutton. Um, mm. Ian uh, Bethel has started to put together a small uh, group of Amazons, from my understanding. Um, yes, he has. Keith McPeak has a, has a pretty large group of Amazon tree boas and is breeding them. Um, Abby has some. I don't really know if she, what she's doing with them. Uh, like Mike Heinrich got out. Uh, Samantha Gage is pretty much out. Jason Hood no longer keeps them. A lot of the people that, that kept Amazons and bred Amazons really aren't doing much with them. So I guess now I, now everything, now I go back through it, there's probably only, you know, I could probably count people on one hand that have a pretty large group of them that are working with them. I mean, they're, mo- they're like 75% of what I keep, and then I have some other odds and ends, but Amazon's the main the main focus. Okay. So let me ask you this, Jeff. I mean, if I were, you know, let's just walk through this scenario. We'll we'll, we'll talk through this. Um, it, as an experienced condor keeper, I, you know, if I were to come to you and say, "Hey, Jeff, you know, I want to get, you know, I'm interested in picking up an Amazon tree boa." Um, how would I need to do things differently in regards to the husbandry that I'm doing different with a green tree python? Just your perching arrangement. How so? That's it. Well, how how would it be different? So, okay. So you wouldn't want to put, you wouldn't want to, they're like a carpet python. So they're going to drape. Um, gotcha. And they need, uh, they like, uh, like grapevines, or they like stuff that's got uh, multiple points of contact. Like I have perches kind of crisscross, and I've got cork bark that's kind of wedged in there. They like surfaces. I mean, if you like shelves in your cages, like a lot of the carpet python guys put shelves in them, I think they look stupid, and I hate cleaning your apes off of them. But an Amazon <laughs> would benefit from a from a from a ledge. Uh, they would benefit from okay. a so. And Amazon is going to spend probably 50% of the time on the ground and 50% of the time draped. 
and they'll go hmm. through seasons where they'll spend more time draped and more time on the ground. So, hmm. um, very I, carpet. I have my Amazon. Yeah. So, oh. especially so, like if you have a gravid female, I would absolutely want to make sure you're giving her a basking spot of ninety-two to ninety-five degrees, um, just hmm. a hot spot, and she's going to go through a daily routine where she's going to probably at night go up and bask. And when you wake up in the morning, she's going to be curled up on the ground at, you know, in an ambient of 75 degrees or whatever, you know, that's kind of where I wow. believe the cool side of my, of my cages around that. And it'll go through that every, every day. And then as she starts to get um, closer to, uh, you know, parturition, she's going to spend more time during the day, um, when she would typically be sleeping on the cooler side, she's going to spend more more time basking, and you're going to see a color shift. She's going to get dark um, as she after she goes through her ovulation, um, and she has her post ovulation shed. But um, from a non gravid female standpoint, there's really, you know, there it's really just like a uh, a congro. I mean, you can. You can keep them in an 18 by 18 by uh, 24. You can keep them in a 24-inch cube, or you can keep them in a 36 by 24 by 24 or 36 by 24 by 18. Um, I've got a new uh, shed being built on the side of my house to get all my animals outside of my my, my main house, and I'm going to have some cages built in the 24 by 24 by 18 um, size range. And... Uh, they don't get very big, you know, like they're a slender snake. So, um, you know, you're not going to see an animal, although I do have one female that is like the largest animal I've ever seen in my life. She's about a bigger, as big around as my wrist, but most of them are pretty slender. So you don't have to have a huge, a huge cage for them. Um, as long as you give them options, like little micro microclimates of different temperature spots they can pick whatever they want they really like over overhanging foliage so like if you have uh you know i've got like plants like fake plants wedged into mine right over perches and over the ground and i can almost bet they're going to be curled up in a ball underneath whatever that overhanging foliage is um gotcha you can feed them a little bit more than a little bit more frequently than you feed a chondro. Um, like a chondro is going to burn less calories than an Amazon is. Amazons are cruising at night. Like they mm-hmm. are moving and mm-hmm. um, they to me are much more visual than my chondros were. So like if I walk in the room um, and my Amazon are awake, they're going to key in on me and follow my movement much more than a chondro would. A chondro, a lot of times, would even pull its head out of its coils. It wouldn't even, like, make a move. But right, I'm in right. cleaning cages. Amazons are much more visual. And it makes sense because their eyes are pretty big when you could, when you look at their head. And I think that they probably feed on birds in the wild. Um, but uh, Amazons don't ever need rats, really. I mean, they'll take them, 
Um, the big female I have prefers rats, but she's also the only animal I've ever seen big enough to take a small rat. I feed all my Amazon. Okay. I feed all my small Amazon or all my normal Amazons. I feed them all just adult mice. And okay. Amazons, if they do have too big of a meal, they'll they'll throw it up on you. Oh, great. So, yeah, they're, it doesn't yeah, mean they're they known have, to regurge, yeah. It doesn't necessarily okay. mean they have parasites. It just means they don't like large, large meals. Like, you, you don't want right. to – you don't really need to power feed an Amazon. An Amazon is going to put on weight um, if you're consistent. But, you know, I, I kind of take the Ryan Young philosophy when it comes to feeding, like, I'll go for a couple of weeks where I'll feed them every six to seven days, and then I'll let them go three weeks with no food. Um, yep. Right. And then okay. I'll go back for adult, adults. And it sounds you know, I use like radiant heat panels. It sounds like so, you're keeping them a little bit warmer than than we keep green trees, unless you're just talking specifically about um, gravid females. But you mentioned temperatures in the mid 90s. No, that's just for gravid females. For for the my other ones, I give the my normal animals that I don't think are gravid. Um, mm-hmm. They're they'll get a hot spot of like eighty seven, eighty eight degrees, and yep. the the cooler side will be like seventy five. Okay, yeah, that's somewhere around that's more there. More in line, gotcha. yeah, more in line gotcha. with green tree stuff. Jeff, how big are neonate? Amazon tree bellas. Are they in you know, they're, they're like little just worms. Thinking, you know, go ahead. They're like little worms. <laughs> like condor bags. Are they Yeah, are they bigger than condros or the same size or smaller? They're 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 a little bit bigger than condros. Uh, they're definitely longer. Um but they have uh they're longer and they're a little thicker in the midsection, but because they're such a slender species that, you know, a large portion of their body is skinnier than a chondro. You know, it's just that midsection that's going to be a little bit bigger. Okay. Do you you normally start those out with pink mice or can you go up to fuzzies or are you just sticking strictly with pink mice as a starting food for those guys? Stick with pinks. Um, I actually have one that would not take pinks from me, but it takes uh, chicken uh, or chick size like crazy. Um, hmm. So if I put put a little chick thigh in there, it'll take it like. So I'm trying to get it switched over. One of the ones that was bored this year for me. But yeah, pinks are typically. You don't you don't run into the feeding issues as much with Amazons than you that you do with a lot of chondros. As babies, well, that's anyway, good to know. Establishing them. Gotcha. What's your what's the uh, what would you say the average litter size is of of these? It depends on the size of the female. Um, like I had. Uh, well, I'd say probably average is probably anywhere from like six to ten babies. 
but you can have more than that and you can have um, less than that. Like this year, I kind of, um, I kind of accidentally bred them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I was, I, my, one of my kids was leaving for college and so I was moving everything into their room and I decided, ah, I'm just going to cohab a pair. Well, that pair was locked up really early in the season. Like, you're not going to, you don't typically see breeding from Amazons this early, but they were locked up in like October. And a lot of people don't even start introducing them until like uh, January because boas typically, it's not like with, with pythons where you cycle them and you introduce them during the cycling period. With boas, a lot of times you cycle them, and then once you bring temps back up, you introduce the uh, the, the pair, and a lot of people kind of um, coincide that with food too. So they'll food cycle them at the same time. So that's like right. Um, that big. Uh, I mean, you just start feeding them a ton, and I guess you know that's nature telling them, hey, food's plentiful we can go ahead and breed so that whenever the babies are born, there's going to be more food for them to eat. You know, that's kind of the way I look at it. But uh, anyway, with this pair, the female, this female was not big at all. Um, And the, the male, I know he was mature, but I put them in and I didn't think anything was going to happen. And I was just cohabiting them. And I walked in in October and she was locked up one time. So one time, (laughs) two weeks later, it was the biggest ovulation I've ever seen. Like, I mean, there was no denying it. I have pictures of it. Wow. And wow. The, ba- the babies were born this early this um, year, and she had five slugs, which I couldn't even believe she had five slugs in her. She's not a very big animal, but she, I had two babies that came out of it. And they're, you know, one's a really, really cool garden. The other one's like brick red. So. Oh, nice. Very cool. Sire is a red with a red red one. Yeah, I like I like the red ones. I like the orange ones too. But before we get into the color stuff, um, do you uh, do you, what do you use for substrate for these guys? Do you use uh, newspaper or do you use you know mulch? I've used it all. Um, okay. Newspaper, I don't like because the ink gets off gets on the animals and mm-hmm. because like with a with an emerald or a green tree python like they're going to be perched most of the time you're not going to see them on the ground much so you're not going to run into the issue right. as much but with amazons they're going to go through that daily routine where they're going to be grounded for part of the time and they're going to be at perching so they're going to get ink all over them and it really kind of muddies okay. the color up so mm-hmm. i i don't like newspaper I use cocoa, um, not fiber, but the cocoa husk, like what you would use for ball pythons. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. I know. I know a lot of the ball guys use it, um, and I like it because it kind of helps with humidity and it clumps together. Like whenever they go to the bathroom, I can just go through and pick up a big scoop of it and get rid of it, and then add some more uh, as you know as needed. Okay. Yeah, you. Uh, you you kind of already. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I was just gonna, yeah, yeah gonna ask him about humidity uh, because that's yep. obviously a key, uh, you know, 
thing that we talk about humidity and hydration a lot uh, with our audience and with our, you know, uh, green tree keepers. What about what about with the uh, tree bows, the Amazons? Yeah, so <clears throat> I've had to kind of not relearn, maybe relearn is the right word, but since moving out to California from Florida, there's off, obviously a different climate, and I kept them and didn't really ever worry about humidity in Florida. When I came out to California, I was having, like, stuck sheds and stuff like that. I was having to soak animals. And so in California, if you live in a drier climate, you really do have to pay attention to humidity a little bit more. That doesn't mean, like, mist your cage every day and saturate it, but I think they do benefit from one or two mistings a week. Um, and you can do that through misting, or sometimes I just take the water bowls and tip them over onto the to the substrate and then just fill them with clean water, um, and that'll boost the humidity. But uh, for me, I have uh, I have had to pay a little bit more attention to my misting regimen um, since living in California than what I did in Florida, and they they will get stuck sheds if they if it's not you know it's not humid enough. And that goes into hydration too. Like I know some people dry their um when they saw a rodent they dry them off. I I feed them to them soaking wet. Um and I feel like the additional water probably is good for them. Um I, I don't have any issues feeding but I also don't have any issues with stuck sheds anymore either. This is uh, such a familiar conversation, Jeff. Um, yeah, it is. It sounds really word for word verbatim identical to almost every keeper we have on GTP, GTP Keeper Radio concerning um, hydration, humidity, and just basically the fact that every animal, every climate, every cage is different, and you just have to be you know, an intuitive keeper, and you have to read your animals, and you have to read your local conditions and your caging requirements and you just have to pay attention you know and if you pay attention um you know my my habits are going to be different from buddies because we're so far separated you know from distance and climate and our caging is different um but yeah just it's so point on exactly what we've heard from virtually every guest we've had on the show about green trees Yep, it's good to know yep. because I think you really can keep keep them the same with just a few little minor tweaks. Yeah. Um, you know, we we've, we've talked, we've covered a lot of stuff already, uh, and you mentioned briefly about some of the different. Um, I don't even know if genetic mutation is the right word or morphs or color phases or what can you tell us about just the differences, uh, you know, in, in, in some of the animals that you keep or some, or some of the animals that are out there available and people are working with? Well, I'll preface that I'm not a science guy. So if I get some of the terminology wrong, Bill, you're going to have to correct me. I won't be offended. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll leave that to Buddy. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm not much, so, much in correction. They're polymorphic. Um, okay. So, All right. Because, so 
just because you have two parents of a particular color doesn't mean all the babies are going to be that color. They could be a variation. They could be a combination. Or you could have some that pop out that are resemblance or a resemblance of one of the grandparents. Okay. Um, very, so very chondrolite. It, well, yes, um, but I feel like the uh, variability between your litter can be more. I mean, chondros are going to be kind of. You're going to come out yellow, or they're going to come out red, and there's going to be a variation of that. You know, you could have the blazes that come out yellow, or you could have the sure. reds that are um, more of a brown or or whatever. But with okay. um, with with Amazon, the variability between the litter can be much more drastic. You could have animals that come out um, heavily patterned with tons of black, um, and you can have animals that come out. Um, with no pattern, and you could have animals that have no pa- that are patternless, but they have their different colors. You know, yellows or, or or different. You know, it's it can be a pretty drastic change within the litter. And one thing I did want to touch on is you have a very drastic um, ontogenic color change with Amazons. Awesome. You know, because because the baby looks like one color. Now it's not like a chondro, so it's not going to go from yellow to green or red to, to green. It's not going to be like that. But like, um, for instance, I'll use this one as an example. So you, let's say you have a baby that's uh, that's yellow with a few faint uh, orange bands on it. You know, you've seen those. Uh, they don't have any black. Well, as that okay. animal grows, um, the orange typically gets much more prominent. So that animal can technically be a 50-50 orange and, and, and yellow banded animal by the time it's an adult. Um, also, like, you could have animals that come out um, orange or red, and by the time they're adults, they're like a you, – sometimes you'll see red babies actually be more of a red color whenever they're adults or um, vice versa. Patternless yellows How? a lot of times – develop black um, speckling hmm. as kind of like a black wash. Uh, I don't know what it is with the melanin, but um, huh. usually black pattern becomes more prominent as they age. So if a baby has just a slight little bit of black pattern, it's probably going to have more pattern, black pattern as it gets older. How predictable, um, Jeff? How, how predictable is the color change, like if you see a litter and, you know, they're, they're very drastically different as babies, how predictable is you can pick out, you know, this one's going to, you know, probably turn out this way and that one's going to turn out this way or whatever? I think it's like with anything else. I mean, I guess like unless I've read that error like okay. two or yeah. three times and I know and I've kept the babies back. I'm not going to tell somebody that this is how the baby's going to look. I, I don't okay. do that with anything. You know, I don't yeah, think that's right. like, I don't think that's smart for you as the breeder. And I don't think that's fair <laughs> to the person buying them. You know, sure. like right. I think you, you give like, I just sold a, uh, uh, a patternless yellow baby to someone. And the guy asked, he goes, you know, or actually it was a girl. She was like, you know, I want to see the, 
the parents. And so I said, here are the parents, here are the siblings. I bought the entire litter off of a friend of mine to produce them in, in um, Florida. Um, I, she was like, is it going to be like this? And I said, well, I can't really say that. Hey, look at the parents. But then look at the babies. All of the babies, none of the babies look like the parents. So, like, in this one, it was like a, a reddish-orange multicolored uh, animal that had some black speckling bred to a, uh, a really unique yellow animal that kind of almost had, like, purplish um, pattern on it, and it had red eyes. But all the babies were, like, all but one were clean orange, and uh, they were either orange and yellow banded or yellow patternless. So they didn't really look like either of the parents. So, um, you know, there's that, there's that going for it, but you know, you, you just don't, you don't really know. You just kind of make a guess and try to tell folks that, you know, that's part of the fun of keeping them. You don't really know exactly how they're going to turn out, but, um, so sorry, I'm kind of rambling on. There are some actual more. I didn't want to talk about kind of get to the the meat of your question. Well, so, Uh, real quick, I, I had no idea that um, Amazon's went through uh, a change from uh, uh, neonate to adult. No idea. So that that's pretty cool. Um, so that I'm, I'm learning something tonight that I was not aware of. Yeah, awesome stuff. Awesome. Well, I'm hoping that a lot of people kind of maybe someone listening to the show will go out and buy an Amazon tree boa <laughs> from this episode um, or any Corrala because I, I've, I've kept emeralds a little bit and they're awesome too but um, as far as the morphs go I, I've owned the morphs and I'm not really a morph guy I'm not really a morph guy with any species so my kind of rule of thumb is if I don't like it as a wild type then I probably shouldn't keep it Um and the morphs, I do have uh, calico. That's kind of the, the one morph that I have. And I I think I'm using the right terminology and that it is allelic. And it is connected to the gene that uh, follows red color. So you're not going to find, there are been like one or two exceptions, but like 98% of all calicos that you see are going to be red. Um, okay. And the white on a calico uh, gets more white as it grows. So it may have just a little bit of white as a baby, and it's going to actually have more. The, the older it goes, many oftentimes it's not uncommon for them to actually have considerable amount of white once they reach adulthood. But they're almost always red animals, um, and that is a, from my understanding, a dominant trait. So, you breed a calico to a non-calico, you're going to have a, you know, give or take, you're going to have roughly a decent amount of calicos inside that litter, um, and then you're going to have some animals that are not calico um that are just normal um but there's not jeff there's not a super calico no so the super is from incomplete dominant correct right 
All right. Yeah. So there's not a super form. So yeah, it would be considered a dominant trait. Now, okay. there is a hypo. Um, now this is one thing I really dislike about the. Uh, now I have nothing against ball pythons, but I feel like it has kind of bled over to the use of this term with Amazons, and I really dislike it. So there is a hypo, but by definition, there are lots of hypos out there that are void of all melanin. So by definition, they're hypos. I have them in my collection. But there's one line in particular that is in complete dominant and has a super form, and it's a leucistic Amazon. Um, oh, okay. They are typically wow. white, and they muddy up with uh, black as they age, but they are born white, um, sometimes with a little bit of black pattern. But um, those animals come from only one line. And so a lot of times people say, you know, oh, I've got a hypo, or they market it as a hypo. And it's like, okay, are we going off of the accepted terminology within the herb community or are we going off the definition of it being hypermelanistic? Because gotcha. Because one one yeah, one's genetic and one is not essentially or or Right. Right. And some of the hypomelanistic animals that produce Lucy's are not always completely hypomelanistic. That's that's another okay. thing. Because I've okay. seen a couple that are from animals that with leucistic that have Lucy's in the, the you know like a leucistic parent, and they've got some like melanin. little pattern on them. Yeah, wow. melanin. Um, so it's it's one of those things. I I personally think the leucistic animals are kind of ugly. Um, they don't really do anything for me. Um, I. I like just the yellow. My favorite animals are yellow and orange banded. Um, but, you know, I, there are a lot of people out there that really go after the, the leucistic stuff. And, um, you know, and, and as I talk about some of the other more, uh, Rory Gresco is kind of the only guy right now that's combining morphs to get, uh, you know, to get different looks and stuff like that. So you have you have the calicos uh, dominant. You have the uh, incomplete dominant with the hypo or the lucy being a super form. Uh, then you've got the tiger, which tiger, my understanding, that that's also a dominant. There's no super form. Um, you breed a tiger to a non-tiger, you're going to get roughly 50%, give or take a little bit. Um, that are going to come out tiger, and that's a pattern mutation, um, and it it can affect the color, but it's it's a pattern mutation. So you can get get it where the stripes are black, and you can also have animals that don't have any black, um, and the stripes are like yellow or um, or orange, and they're from head to tail. So it's like a, a, a not like a tiger stripe, but like a vertical. You know, a linear yeah. stripe. Okay. Um, they're they're pretty easy to pick out of the clutch, regardless of the the difference. I mean, it's, I mean, of the litter, well, it's pretty like, easy to 
say, yeah, that's definitely a tiger. That's not. Yeah, for the most part, but they can be subtle. Like, yeah. you, you know, when they're babies, you, sometimes they don't have much of a stripe. Um, you you just kind of look for – the more you look at them, the more you can kind of pick it. Like someone that knows Amazon tree boas can pick them out, but someone that doesn't right. probably wouldn't right. pick up on the subtle – on the subtle stripe because it's not necessarily a complete stripe when they're born. Okay. Um, a lot of times it's just like a couple speckles that are in a line and you're like, gotcha. oh, okay, that's a, that's a, or, you know, of whatever color that is, whether it be black or yellow or red or whatever. Um, so, but you typically can, can pick them out. You know, it is a pattern mutation. Um, okay. Yeah. You have the leopard, which is, a my understanding is a is a simple recessive, and that's allelic, and then it follows the garden phase, um, or whatever colors, whatever, whatever gene controls the garden color, the brown or the gray color, um, that's what, you know, and, and so that's also a pattern mutation. Um, so, Rory just produced, uh, uh, he calls them ligers. Because <laughs> he didn't know what to call him, but he basically <laughs> produced the first uh, uh, tiger leopards, and all of okay. them were garden. So now, uh, just was, backtrack, backtrack for one second, because you're using the, um, the the color phase garden. Um, oh, are there two sorry. different color phases uh, of garden? Uh, well, you, you just use that it, term. What does that look like for us, Jeff? Describe that for me. The, the gardens are the ones that are um, the brown ones, the ones that are kind of the, the less colorful, usually okay. not as expensive. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Brown, okay, gray. Versus the red versus like the red colored or whatever. Right. And Okay. Oh, and so, and some people have uh, described the uh, babies that, that come out all black. Um, those are actually leopards. So, for the for the people that have there, there's been some leopards that leopards can be born completely solid black, and then they grow into the more leopard looking color. Um, okay. So, what does the yeah, typical so, leopard color look like, Jeff? It's a garden. It's, it's a garden color with a pattern mutation of spots like like a leopard. Um, okay. Okay. It's, it's going to be brown. The spots are a darker shade of brown than the base color. The base color is kind of like a light gray most of the time, and the, the spots are like a dark brown. Some can be almost black looking, but they're kind of like a chocolatey brown color. Um, so somebody somebody's been mixing the leopard in into something different than non-garden? Well, yeah. Well, Rory has actually mixed a tiger with two different more. So he's produced, um, he calls them ligers, which are leopard tigers. Um, all of the, I think the parents were actually uh, garden phase. So all the babies came out garden, but uh, the, the leopard and the tiger are both a pattern mutation. So it, made the pattern kind of a mix between the two. Um, and then okay. he also has mixed the tiger with the calico. So the oh, tiger wow. calicos are red 
Amazons, but the, the white that you would get from a calico, but it's a white stripe. So, oh, wow. Oh, interesting. Um, they're pretty wild. Cool. Um, yeah, so then you, you – so you have the – so, yeah, so that's the hypo, the Lucy, the calico, the tiger, the leopard. And then there's a new one that just came into the country not too long ago called the marble. And I really don't know much about it. They produced um, – they only have like one or two surviving animals that came in from the European ship. They came in through Dayton Croyton and Nick Mutton. Uh, they both kind of like brought it in. Um, and it's uh, – uh, I they are leaning, I think, to it being a simple recessive trait, but they haven't proven it out through enough generations. They just had their first litter, um, and I think they had visuals in the litter. But this is like, you know, this has been like three or four years, I guess, in the making. So I'm not quite sure. I don't really want to speak to how that the mode of inheritance with that because I don't know much about it. But it's it's pretty unique. It's got like white speckling in the pattern, and the uh, the color's kind of wonky as well. So hmm. that's about as much as I know about it. They're the only ones in the U.S. that have it, as far as I know. Oh, I I guess there's paradox too. I forgot about that one. So yeah, what's that? There was a litter. Well, like paradox, you've always thought um, it's not like. Uh, a trait that can be passed on. It's kind of random. Um, well, there was a farm down in, I think it was Guiana or, or uh, Suriname, but basically the entire litter was was paradox. So there's a gene in Amazon tree boas that is inheritable for paradox. <laughs> and, wow. Uh, the, guy, the guy that has all of them um, I think he his tagline on Facebook is Paradox Predators or or Paradox. I don't know the name of it. He's he's um, I don't his name is not uh, it's kind of a unique name. I'm trying to remember. I think it's Niev or something like that. I, I'm I, I'm sorry I can't remember that's his a, name. That's but, okay. Um, he's, what is a paradox? He's got, what he's is a paradox? What does a paradox look like oh, in a in an Amazon? They are they are wild. I'm not big on morphs, but these things look awesome. <laughs> really? It's like <laughs> it's it's almost like a chimera. It's like oh, it's it's like you have like an animal that has like parts of it that fall that look like its garden, and you have parts of it that look like it's like yellow or orange, and then you'll have like other parts that are just mixes of different colors. It's weird. And it's not like, it's not like they're blended. It's like somebody just basically took like splattered paint on them. And it's just random, but they all have different. They're, they're all, everything in this litter, all the babies were paired off. So these, I know when he bought these as babies, um, we're, we're a few years back. I think they're getting to where they can be bred now. So I'm kind of anxious to see if he reproduces. I mean, for an entire to come out paradox is is pretty wild. I mean, usually you only see like one, you know, pop up in, in other species, you know, in a clutch or a right. litter. So I, 
to have the I, whole litter. I, or... I just Google. Go I just Googled. I just Googled it, and yeah, the pictures of them are very, very cool. It's what you'd expect in a paradox animal. I mean, it's like animals red and yellow, but it's got a bunch of just black, you know, intermixed all over in its face and down throughout its dorsal part. Looks really cool. Yeah, they're they're wild looking. I, I, that's a, you know, I, the calicos and the paradox are the two that, like, if I was going to work with morphs, those would be the ones I would work with. Hmm. For me, that's just gotcha. that to be what I I like the most. Yeah, they look really cool. Jeff, what do you what do you think is the the most popular? I mean, I know like when I look at them, I like the clean yellows and the oranges and the reds with no other colors mixed in. Like what what uh, and you know with your experience, what would you think is the, the most popular color phase or morph of of the Amazon tree belt right now? Um, I think most people are after reds. Um, it seems reds. to be the one that is offered for sale the less, the least. So, um, I think mo- most people want reds. And uh, if you can find a patternless red, oh my goodness, you've kind of hit the holy grail. I think from a non-morphs mm-hmm. perspective, I'm mm-hmm. kicking myself for selling that one back in 2000, <laughs> whenever four or five, because <laughs> you never see animals like that now. Um, but I, I think that, um, the, the orange and yellow bandits are really popular. Um, some, they're kind of like chondros and like they have a little something for everybody. I know some people right. really like the garden and I know some people that really like yellows. Um, like they, like they, uh, there was a guy, his name was Adam, um, Gosh, I'm trying to recall his last name. His company was called the Carnivorous Orchard, or Carnivorous oh, yeah. Orchard, or company. something like that. Yeah, yeah. He, yep. he 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 bred caninus, and he had a line of um, yellow Amazons that were patternless and stayed super clean um, into adulthood. And some, you know, there's some people that like. Uh, I kind of call them brindles. They're like muddied up, you know. They've got black speckling all over them, but they're they're also a colored Amazon. It's not like a garden. So um, some people like that really dirty look. Um, you know, I, it's kind of like different strokes for different folks. That's the way I look at Amazon. Right. You've got a little something for everybody. But I think by far reds are kind of like they're the the least produced and the least sold, I think, publicly anyway. Hmm. Interesting. Jeff, of what course, kind I would of, like um, those. Of course, you would, because you're you're high end. <laughs> <laughs> we're hey Jeff. We're kind of winding down towards the end of the show, and uh, thanks again sure. for, for spending time with us. Um, we did want to touch briefly on breeding, um, breeding these okay. animals. So maybe you can kind of run down. Um, you know, just kind of the basics as far as, uh, you know, getting animals ready to breed, uh, the, the cycling that you uh, talked about, um, you know, w- whether you utilize a nest box for these or, you know, anything that, that you kind of routinely do. Okay. Well, they don't, they're not egg layers, so they don't really need a nest box um, per se. Um, 
they are going to basically, you know, there's more than one way to skin the cat with these guys, but uh, they're an equatorial species. So from a seasonal standpoint, you have a dry season and a rainy season. Really, there's not, they're not seeing a winter like what we see, although a lot of people do do it with temps and it is done perfectly fine with temps. You don't necessarily have to temp cycle them to cycle them for breeding. You can do it with food. Um, a lot of people uh, will cycle them through feeding. So like the winter time, they will basically offer them pretty much nothing for two or three months. And then they'll just start throwing food at them and that will send the female into follicular development and she will start to uh, start to, you know, develop follicles and, and then you introduce the males and temps are obviously raised at that point because you don't want to, or, well, I guess for those, they haven't done anything to temp, so it doesn't matter. But uh, for me, I do a little bit of both. So like I cut feeding back um, and, and cycling, which um, typically I start that around November um, or December, and I cut the food back to where the males are getting fed maybe once a month, if that, and the females are getting fed maybe um, a couple times a month, maybe two at the most. Um, okay. And I may let them even go a month with no, no, no food at all. Uh, they're basically not getting much of anything. I'm keeping them hydrated. Um, and uh, temps, you don't really have to drop temps too much. I just do like a four or five degree drop, and that's enough to to put them in. And I will put a male in, um, and if I see a lock, I separate them, and I watch the female. Um Okay. Because the males, a lot of times, will breed and the female's not ready. You want to kind of gotcha. observe the female and see if she's developing follicles. If you start to see stale separation, and you can take females out and palpate them, and if they've got follicles, they'll feel just like little little marbles inside. Right. Like, uh, you know, when you used to play with the marbles, the big marble that you used to hit to knock the small ones out, they're about yeah. like that. Okay. Um, you'll feel them just running down the middle of the side, just let them slither through your hand and, um, you know, gently press upwards with your two fingers. You'll feel just little knobs yeah. and you can yep. count the follicles down the, down the body and see what they have. That's when you want to start throwing, throwing Get that the male, male in there. Uh, and right. Yeah. And if once they breed and the female, um, ovulates, the, the female is going to darken like, I mean, she's going to get much darker, like you're one to two shades darker than what she typically is. Um, wow. And she's going to look dirty, you know, like it's going to be a, it's not going to be a very pretty snake. And um, it's so, she'll it's so interesting. Uh, start. It's so, I was going to say, it's so interesting. You know, we don't talk about ball pythons much on this uh, show, but I breed a lot of ball pythons and the, the female Royals, ball pythons. Ah, yeah, Royals. <laughs> they do the exact opposite. <laughs> they get super light before they ovulate or after they've ovulated. Oh, really? They undergo a dramatic light phase. Yes, so interesting. Well, Amazons get dark, and okay. they will will continually swell. And once they've ovulated, you can pretty much separate the male. Um, sure. A lot of times the male will 
uh, refuse food um, while he's breeding the female. Um, females typically, that's a good sign. So if the female's refusing food, um, then you, you're, you're good to go. You know, um, some females will feed. Like I have one right now. I don't know if she's got, but she, she was bred the heck out of the spring and she's huge, but she still feeds, but she's like a reluctant hmm. feeder. So I'm like, I'm on the fence. I've taken her out and tried to palpate her, but she's so big that I'm yeah. not, I'm not feeling anything. So I don't know. And she hasn't really darkened in, in color. So I'm not sure what's going on with her, but you know, those are kind of the things that you, you see gestation um, on average, I think is like taking is like 110 days um, and can go as long. I think rare cases to 150 days after the post ovulation shed. Oh, wow. Um, but my litter, and this has to do with the basking spot, um, my litter was born at 119 days um, after the post-ovulation shed. So um, they can go, and I kept basking spot like 91, 92 for her. Um yeah. So she had them. I, I I bet you if it was a little bit lower, she probably would have had a longer gestation. But the the babies were robust, and you know, I both my babies fed before their first first shed. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, okay, yeah, that's one thing that you know that that I'd like you to talk about getting babies established. 119 days sounds like a long time, but when you think about it, like for the for, for the Python guys, that's really the same as oviposition and hatching, right? Like you know, fifty five days right. plus fifty yep. days, right? One hundred and five days, you know. Right. So it's really kind of the same thing. It's it's just it's that's very interesting. Yeah, and that's what people think. They just you know, they're, oh, I don't I don't like the weight. And it's like, well, there's no eggs, so it's not. Right. I mean, you're still, you know, they're instead of calcifying an egg with an embryo that needs to go into an incubator and develop there, they're just doing it all inside of them. Yeah, yep. exactly. So there's a, you know, it's funny is there's a, there's a smell to, um, to the baby. It's not foul. It's just kind of different whenever they have babies. I didn't know that mine had had the babies. I was actually kind of like, like, man, I'm, she's due any time. And I was inside filling up some water bowls, and I just saw the – I looked at some stuff, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's a slug. Holy crap, that's a baby, per, per, you know, perched on the <laughs> plant. So, I, you know, I, I counted back, and based, you know, on what I had thought, I think they were born the day before because I was in there looking. So um, uh, that's where I kind of came up with the days. But they're not hard to breed, you know. I mean, they're, they're not like deep. a – you're not working with an, a Halmahera scrub or, you know, Molucan or, or, yeah, or Bolins, yeah. <laughs> are, you know, and are you worried? And they don't are you worried? Well, I was going to ask you, um, do you have to remove the females from the perches? Are you worried about them, like, dropping the litter, like, as they're perched? Or that's a big thing, you know, we worry about is dropping eggs from perches. Do you have to worry, worry about that? No, I, usually they'll, the, the babies will come out like ready to go. They'll come out 
ready to, to they'll find themselves a little spot and curl around and and a lot of times the female tail hangs anyway, so she'll be slithering around on the perches, but her her lower third close, of her bench is on the ground. Yeah. And, gotcha. yeah. The the only thing you could run a risk of is her uh depositing babies into the water bowl and they weren't able to get out of the egg sac in enough time and they drowned, but I don't think hmm. I've never heard of that happening. Okay. Before. So I you don't pull water, water bowl you don't, for mine. Okay, you don't. No. Yeah. See, we. I, I did I mean, nothing. But, okay. Yeah. Well, see, Buddy will tell you that we routinely remove perches and water bowls because chondro mothers are so stupid they'll try any way possible to to kill their eggs. <laughs> and I. And I would do the same thing with a python, but with with these guys, and I've I'm I haven't heard any of the emerald guys do any different either. Um, okay. I don't think you you did. Keith McPeak produced Richard Burger Isle, uh it was either earlier this year or last year, and he didn't do anything different. Um, I know the guys like I've had Vin Russo on uh, to talk about annulated tree boas with uh, I know. Um, Terry Burwell has produced annulated. I've had a few guests on the show that have produced annulated, and they haven't done anything different either. So I don't think with boas it's something you really need to worry about. I think that's one of the things that guys like about boas is you don't run the risk of egg binding. You don't run the risk of uh, any, you know, any of the things happening to the eggs because when the babies come out, they're, they're ready to go. Most of the time, I mean, sometimes we'll have some that just aren't meant to survive, but right, um, right. And this is so talking about egg binding. I know you guys got to go, but um, I was talking to Nick Mutton because Nick Mutton produced a small litter of mummified uh, Russian burgeri. So they went through all the motions, bred, and she never had the babies. And hmm. the next year, she. Uh, she deposited little mummified versions of Russian burger eye babies that obviously were not alive. But yeah, and I've and I've actually seen Brian Barczyk, uh do have some of his uh, some of his he breeds Colombian rainbows, and I've seen him find uh, mummified, you know, old uh, Colombian rainbow babies inside litters that. I guess he assumes we're from the year prior. So I don't think it's as risky with boas as it is with the pythons. Hmm. And I'm not the most experienced guy out there, but it just seems to be my my two cents of what I've seen from other people. Hmm. That's good to know. So, so everything works out and babies are on the ground or – all that fun stuff. How do you go about establishing them? So I'll I put them in a uh, tub with a small little heat mat underneath part of the tub, and I fill it with uh, peat moss, or not peat moss, sphagnum moss. Um, you want to make sure it's damp. They they you can't let them dry out um, when they're babies because they're going to go through. They're going to absorb that the the their bellies are going to be full of, you know, I guess the yolk, 
I, I guess for lack of a better term or whatever it is sure. that they're getting from the mom. Right. Um, yep. And, and uh, they'll go through that shed, and after that first shed, you can start offering them food, which they typically will go through the shed. It'll take a week or two before they actually go through the shed. But I had um, mine. I just was like, and stuff, and I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll throw a couple little pinks and throw one at them, and one of them didn't want the pink, and one of them took the pink pre-first shed. Neither one of them had shed yet, uh, this litter that I had this year, and then the other one uh, took the the chick thigh before its first shed. So they will eat before their first shed. I mean, that's a good sign. I've heard people say that they have issues getting on the feed, and I don't really know how that could be possible. They're so big. <laughs> right. Do you, do you just put like a, pin, a live pink in there, or or do you feed them uh, no, thaw frozen off of tongs? Yep. Okay. Yep. Thaw frozen off tongs, unscented. So... Yeah, it's becoming it's becoming more uh, common, I think, to try to feed baby green trees before their first shed. I've started doing that a little bit. Oh, oh that's cool. Nobody did that back when I was keeping them. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's just you know, it's it it never hurts to offer, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean. Why not give them that extra little boost of getting established? I would yeah, I think I had. If I had a clutch of sickness babies sitting in my herp room, I'd probably be watching <laughs> those things uh, day and night. That's the first thing I do when I get up in the morning. <laughs> Don't but... tell the wife. <laughs> half of those babies, half of those. Half of those babies ate before their first shed. Half of them did. You know, and I know there's different different uh, schools of thought on that. But I think that's totally an inheritable thing. Like I, I know John yep. Romano when he when he used to keep chondros used to talk about it, and people used to shoot it down. But you've seen it with other species. I think it's a totally an inheritable thing. Just the fact that, like, a good feeder, like, just right out of the bat, you know, that, that that's going to – that that animal will produce babies that are good feeders, that kind of thing? I think so. Um, like, yeah. I've had conversations with Nick Mutton. I mean, so, like, uh, so this is – so I, I also have uh, Tamalithus cloudforest boas. Um, they're pretty much isolated from uh, anything in the wild. So most of the wild animals that come in or, or most of the wild animals out there are all related because of the way, the nature of their habitat. Well, all the ones in the U.S. came from one single pair. So I was talking to Vin Russo, and I'm like, so we don't see any problems with inbreeding and stuff like that. And he said, no, because nature has selected that whatever those poor genes are, to basically those animals did not thrive. So the animals that came out that were healthy, no defects whatsoever, those are the animals that survived. And I feel like that was feeding too. Like I feel like if we pick, if we pick animals 
that are, if we're picking our holdbacks, and they're the animals that fed right out the gate, and you breed those animals to other animals that fed right out the gate, once you get two or three generations in, my personal belief is that you're going to see a large portion of that clutch or litter that's going to be like mom and dad. They're going to feed right out the gate. And the more you do that, that, that gene of just feed response and, and, and because that, that's a sign of an animal that's more, more set up to thrive if it was in the wild than if it, it was, you know, wasn't a, a good feeder because it'd get picked off and it wouldn't thrive, you know. So Absolutely. that's my thoughts on it. I don't know. It's, I mean, Amazons aren't the hardest animals to feed, so it's probably not the best sample but if you did it with chondros you know it might take you a little while but i feel like you probably would see some surprising results and you might be able to get some data it might take you 15 years but you know <laughs> I, I don't know I, I, kind of my I, 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 I don't think there's any doubt that as we get further along in the chondro generations that they are they are getting easier to keep to breed to get babies established um i mean it wasn't that long ago that the ball python was considered a difficult a difficult animal you know to to work with to, right. to breed in captivity to you know to get to eat to breed and and now you know you've got every 14 year old in his basement that's that's you know producing ball pythons um so i i think that's true probably with many of the species that we work with um you know so i think it's a good point jeff Well, I, you know, I I try to think outside the box with stuff, and I also try to apply common sense to a lot of things. And um, I'm not I'm not for, you know, uh, trying to humanize snakes, but I do think that like I look at things from a, a human standpoint, and things that maybe we pass on to our kids, or maybe um, dispositions that we may have you know i feel like you can kind of see that sometimes with with the animals you keep too you just gotta look at them from a different perspective yeah i mean absolutely agreed yep well we are coming up we are right on the two-hour mark so um man what a great show absolutely I have to get some uh, Amazon tree boas now, Bill. I know. But you already have like, like two hundred. I, I I did literally just get my I've I've got three female uh, Central American boas that I got three or four months ago from from the uh, from the Southeast Carpet Fest auction. Eric Chung produced them, so I do have boas in my collection now. Nice. Gotcha. It's a okay. slippery slope. Right. <laughs> What's that? I said it's a slippery slope. <laughs> we're, we're seated. The jury's still out. So far, I've enjoyed working with them. They're just, you know, they're baby fem- You know, just little baby females, but they're awesome. Nice. Most of my right. are boas. I have a couple of pythons, but that's it. 
All right, Jeff. Well, thank you again for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. I know that, the, uh, that our listeners appreciate your time and uh, your expertise in the species. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. Yep. Thanks, Jeff. All right. All right. All right. Have a good week. You guys have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Yes, thank you. Yep, bye. All right, my friend, another good episode. Absolutely. Yes, it was. Um, very similar. Learned a couple yeah, things, amazing. too. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. No, yeah. it's um, – yeah, it was everything I thought it would be. He did a great job, like, kind of comparing and contrasting, um, you know, everything from uh, acquiring and keeping, maintaining, breeding these things. Uh, just a great uh, perspective to have somebody that's kept green trees who, uh, you know, now keeps arboreal boas. Yeah, definitely. Gives you a set you up for success if you're interested in them. Still yep. like the red ones, though. I don't know if I like the, <laughs> you like those red I don't know ones. if I like the third. I do like the red ones. I do like those. I like them a lot. Okay. But you will you should get them, Bill, and then you can tell me all about them. Okay. Consider it done. Gotcha. I'll uh, start looking at right, classified tomorrow and send you some links. All right, buddy. Have a good week. And, all right, Bill. Uh, yep, you too. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Yeah, take care. Take care. All right, bye.